This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we're talking to Luis Valerio Trindad about his book, No Laughing Matter, Race, Joking and Resistance in Brazilian Social Media, published by Vernon Press this past year, 2020. Luis Valerio Trindagi holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Southampton, where he investigated the phenomenon of racist hate speech on social media, and particularly against Black Brazilian women. Um, In this research, he found that most of the racist hate speech has been conveyed through disparagement humor, which is, of course, uh, the subject of his book and what we're going to talk about today. Uh, So what's the impact of this kind of race joking in Brazilian society? So welcome, Luis Valerio, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Mandela. Thank you very much for the invitation. No, thank you. And so I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you started with the research for this book. Uh, Okay. So um, I'm a Brazilian national, so I was born in Sao Paulo, and um, I've been researching the social condition of a black Brazilian since uh, 2006. And from 2006 to 2008, I developed uh, um, a uh, 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 master research regarding the social representation of black Brazilians on um, printed advertisements. And uh, after that, a few years after that, uh, then I went for my PhD in sociology and then I expanded my research interest and because it's calling my, my attention, the fact that uh, social media has become very popular in Brazil, and also that uh, many people were using this platform uh, to convey racist ideologies. So that caught my attention. So that has triggered my interest in investigating um, this social phenomenon. Right. And maybe before we dive into that, and I know this is a very large question, but could you offer us a general idea of the history and formation of race relations in Brazilian uh, society? What are some of the key historical developments that people should take into account when thinking about race dynamics in Brazil? Uh, Yes, in fact, um, one of the, how can I say, one of my concerns of my focus when I developed this research and the book in particular was to provide the reader with a um, contextual a perspective regarding uh, the construction of race, uh, racial relations in Brazil, um, because not necessarily everyone that read the book 
would be familiar with those um, contexts. So I started um, 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 developing a contextual explanation um, from the late 19th century upwards um, because uh, uh, if you analyze, if you pay attention um, in nowadays racial relations and also the discourse regarding race and racism in Brazil, uh, if you don't review um, those um, colonial legacies, uh, it becomes difficult to understand their or origin and their motivations. So I have uh, uh, um, researched, uh, reviewed, uh, better speaking, um, the legacies, uh, uh, the colonial legacies uh, in building those uh, uh, relations. So just to be more specific, I address, for example, um, the modernity or the project of modernity that the Brazilian elite has built on the beginning of the 20th century um, that was mirrored uh, in the Europe, um, Eurocentric models of modernity. And what does it mean? Uh, it means uh, uh, a model focus on whitening ideology, uh, considering whitening as the ultimate symbol of humanity, modernity, progress, and uh, all sorts of positive attributes. And, uh, and in contrast, uh, all the negative attributes, they started to be associated with blackness. So that creates the foundation of the Brazilian racial relations, and it's manifested up to the present time. Um, so what were some of these strategies to uh, foster this kind of whitening um, project? Yes. Um, well, there is um, one emblematic um, study that was published in 1911, yes, 1911, um, uh, in London by a Brazilian scholar of that time that praised whitening And he believed that within uh, one century or three generations from that time, Brazil would become a white-only country. And, and how uh, he constructed this uh, belief, this um, understanding? Because on the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, when Brazil abolished um, slavery, Uh, it has started a process of uh, um, fostering of uh, immigration of white Europeans, um, uh, um, how can I say, uh, workers to work in the farms. And the Brazilian elite at that time believed that uh, this immigration of white Europeans uh, mixing with the predominantly um, black and miscegenated population, uh, as time went by, they would become only white. So that created the foundation of the whitening ideology and praising whitening as the ultimate symbol of um, modernity and progress. Uh, so that was you know, the strategy implemented by the Brazilian elite on the beginning of the 20th century. But then you also distinguish other, uh, let's call it stages, in, in how 
race is conceived in Brazil, and uh, very famously, um, Brazil has this myth of racial democracy. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that when it started yes, to develop? And, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So uh, this was um, so this white ideology that dominated um, the the thoughts of the Brazilian elite and some inflation inflation alters in the beginning of the 20th century up to the mid-20s, 1920s. Uh, and then uh, in the mid of 1930s uh, emerged the idea of racial democracy. So uh, in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, um, the elite believed that blackness and mestizage, they were uh, degenerating the Brazilian population. However, um, in the early 1930s, uh, emerged the idea that, in fact, the uh, uh, Brazilian miscegenated population represented not a problem, but in, uh, indeed a differentiation um, comparing to other nations. So uh, in this time, uh, we had the publication of an influential book uh, called The Masters and the Slaves uh, by um, Gilberto Freire. And this book contributed to the development of the idea uh, that uh, oh. uh, the Brazilian slavery regime was not uh, as, uh, how can I say, severe as it has been in, in the US. And in fact, they believe that uh, uh, the Brazilian slavery regime was much kinder and that in fact, there was a, a harmonious combination of uh, black population, European and indigenous. And that created the idea of a harmonious racial relation. Uh, and that was the, the backbone of the so-called racial democracy. Yes, and you mentioned how um, even, I guess, before Freire, um, these ideas uh, were encouraged when you explained, for instance, how um, right after the abolition of slavery, the whole uh, archive around slavery was burned in a kind of gesture to say, maybe to deny it or to, or to deny its consequences in a post-slaved um, society. And, and even how it was certain phrases in the national um, hymn of, of, and in the national anthem of Brazil uh, kind of denied also um, the consequences and the legacies of uh, slavery. Um, when, when was this myth of uh, racial democracy uh, challenged? When did it start to be challenged? Yeah, it, it took a while. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you said rightly, uh, the, the Brazilian elite, um, uh, in their quest to develop, you know, the Brazilian, or not to develop, but to, um, um, how can I say, to put Brazil into the uh, modern modern era. Um, so the legacy of the slavery was something that they didn't want to face. So there was a conscious denial of a three and a half century, three and a half centuries of slavery regime. Um, so, uh, in this uh, in this move uh, of denying the the legacy, so there was this historical event where uh, Rui Barbosa, that was a minister at that time in 1890, he demanded that uh, our uh, documents that was in the archive 
related to the ownership of slaves, uh, they should be burned uh, because he believed that uh, we were entering a new era and that uh, a legacy, not legacy, but that uh, mark uh, should be deleted from history. So that's why he demanded that those documents should be uh, burned. And um, uh, evolving from there, so the myth of racial democracy started to be challenged uh, only in the 1960s. Uh, so from that moment onwards, that the myth of racial democracy started to be challenged um, because it was um, some scholars, they, um, how can I say, they brought to the surface the fact that uh, uh, blacks and whites in Brazil, they had very different starting points. Uh, what, what does it mean? It means that the opportunities for upward social mobilities they were completely unequal. So there was a strong racial problem uh, in Brazil. Um, and that racial democracy was trying to disguise that, you know. So they were fostering the idea, uh, the, the, the uh, defenders of racial democracy, they defend the idea of uh, meritocracy. But the meritocracy is valid when the starting point for different racial and social groups is the same. When those the starting point they are very different, then uh, it's not a meritocracy; it's privilege. At, at the beginning of the book, you include a very interesting um, study. Well, it's actually I think uh, the census data from census I think from the nineteen seventies, uh, where people self-identified ra- racially in in a yeah, in a lot of different ways. I don't know how many different categories they use. Um, and I cannot imagine a similar kind of response in a place like the U.S., for instance. Could, could you talk about uh, a little bit more about that uh, data and how people think of race today and how people said, self-identify in regards to race in Brazil? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what happens is that, uh, as I said uh, a moment ago, so this um, process of building the modern Brazil, um, the central pillar of this modern Brazil uh, was and continues to be white ideology, meaning that uh, uh, all positive attributes are related to whiteness. So uh, beauty standard, um, uh, intel- intellectuality, um, progress, and so forth. And In contrast, uh, a series of negative attributes, laziness, um, backwardness, ugliness, and so forth, they are associated with blackness. Uh, So in the 1970s, um, the censors, um, they used to be self-declaration. So people, they had the possibility to declare which racial group they belonged to, white, black, or in between, you know, miscegenated and different terminologies. But since this um, belief in whitening as the ultimate symbol of modernity and, and so forth, it's so deeply um, linked, so deeply, uh, you know, uh, present in the collective mindset uh, that the people say, hmm, Okay, I might not be exactly white, but I don't don't want to be associated with blackness. 
So they created um, like 120 different terminologies to classify themselves uh, as miscegenated. So they don't, uh, they, they didn't say simply I'm miscegenated. They created so different terminologies, but in a sense, uh, those creative terminologies, intermediary terminologies, they had and they still have the objective to uh, distance themselves from blackness because there are so many negative attributes associated with blackness and get as close as possible to the whiteness because that's the symbol, ultimate symbol of modernity, beauty, and so forth. Yeah, incredible. Um, so what's the other side of this uh, whitening ideology? Um, how have Black Brazilians organize themselves and resist this kind of uh, narratives and power dynamics? Uh, well, um, there, are, there, there has been uh, several initiatives, you know, um, to resistance to, to racism uh, in Brazil. Uh, that's not new, that comes since from the colonial times. But more recently, um, let's say in the contemporary Brazil, uh, those initiatives, they they have been, they have moved uh, mainly to the online environment. Of course, there is still uh, the organized black movement, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, initiatives. But these two technologies has enabled um, the black people to um, convey a different uh, perspective, a different uh, perception of blackness, uh, to value more uh, blackness as a uh, to challenge all those negative attributes that are so entrenched, so deeply present in the collective mindset. Could could you give some examples of uh, how they have organized and or how some important and historical presence? Yeah, there, there has been uh, how can I say uh, the emergency of so many uh, online communities that uh, foster, uh, for example. Um, the value of the natural Afro hairstyle because Afro hair is a visible racial marker that for many, many decades, uh, it has been associated with a lot of negative attributes. So there has been a lot of movements uh, challenging this and praising the natural Afro hairstyle, uh, not only as an aesthetic choice, but uh, mainly as a political positioning uh, against uh, um, enduring racism in Brazil. So that's one example. Another example that's very uh, powerful um, regards um, sharing lived experience of racism uh, by black people, uh, mainly black women, uh, with the objective to empower them uh, to tell, look, you're not alone. We understand what you feel. We understand what uh, you're going through. And that helps them to process those lived experience of racism and challenging them. So those are some, uh, you know, examples of those initiatives that have been gaining ground uh, in the past few years. Yeah. And so you point out that the expansion of social media has resulted in an increase of hate speech, quite the opposite of what platforms like Facebook promised when they started. And at the same time, the same platforms have also been used to create wider organized movements and different forms of activism. So how do you explain these different results? Uh, what is going on here? What's the relation between social media and hate speech? 
Yeah, in fact, um, uh, so uh, we have to step back a bit. So <laughs> I talk about the resistance initiatives, but first I should talk about the race, the hate speech on social media. Um, because since the mid-2000s, uh, when those uh, major social media platforms, they emerged, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and WhatsApp, and Instagram, and so forth, um, they have enabled those um, people that praise white supremacy um, to convey their races, their discriminatory ideologies uh, on social media, and uh, also to engage other like-minded people um, to amplify their voices in the online environment. So this has become a, a, a breeding ground to disseminate those uh, discriminatory ideologies. Uh, we are talking here about uh, racism against black people, and especially black women, but it's not only that. There is also uh, misogyny, um, homophobia, and xenophobia, and, and all sorts of hate speech. And uh, social media has empowered, in the negative sense, um, those people because with these networking capabilities, um, they are able to connect with like-minded people and amplify their voices uh, in ways that uh, you would not see in the offline context, you know. And you also talk uh, quite a bit about uh, the failure of legal responses Uh, to racism in this kind of platforms. Um, could, could you say something about that? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so what happens is that um, uh, racism is a crime in Brazil. Um, it's uh, foreseen in the legislation. However, uh, I'm not um, um, a legal expert, but I have <laughs> read a bit about that to also to write in the book. Um, there are two, um, two streams, let's put it this way. Uh, so first is what they call racial injury, when you offend someone, an individual person. And the other is the crime of racism, uh, when there is uh, flagrant, uh, blatant discrimination against um, a group of people. Um, but the, the, the sanctions are completely different. So for racial injury, um, the legislation... Uh, says that uh, the person, if convicted, can face up to six months incarceration. And oftentimes the judge uh, has the power to change that uh, penalty uh, instead of incarceration as a social uh, sanction. For example, to purchase uh, um, uh, food for uh, um, people in need, you know, for a charity, a donation for a charity, something like that. And the other crime, that crime of racism, that is more difficult also to prove. Um, so the legislation says that it's up to five years incarceration. However, uh, most cases of uh, racist discourses uh, online, on social media, on the internet in general, they are classified as racial injury. And the, as I said, the sanction is up to six months incarceration That never happens. Uh, it's always converted through social benefits, like donating um, uh, for a charity. So that creates in the population the perception of impunity, because people say, okay, uh, that the person has engaged in a um, hate speech on social media, but the penalty is so light that uh, it looks like uh, it nothing happened. 
And that in the case that the this kind of speech is detected, because another thing that you talked about is how um, there's a shared responsibility uh, shared between the company, say Facebook and the users in trying to report and monitor uh, this kind of speech and how, and you mentioned how Facebook is lacks the resources actually to do a good monitoring. Yes, absolutely, because uh, those large corporations, um, they have those powerful algorithms, um, but they are not enough to, to capture um, all hateful content that circulates on social media. And they also have uh, uh, moderators. Um, um, I, I would not remember the exact number now, but I think that's something like 6,000, 7,000 people that Facebook employs only as moderators of content, but those people, 6,000 or 7,000, uh, now I don't have the exact number on the top of my head, but uh, they are uh, to deal with all the language that uh, Facebook deals with. So it's practically impossible, uh, you know. So they also rely on the users to flag some content that is considered uh, you know, disturbing, but the response time uh, of those platforms usually is not as fast as people would like to, so that the content it circulates in social, on social media for a long time. And uh, you know that uh, uh, also usually uh, the users, they don't have an account in just one social media platform. Uh, oftentimes they have accounts across a variety of uh, social media platforms. So it means that a disturbing content or a hateful discourse that has been published in one social media platform, it can easily circulate across many others. And the effect of this is the amplification of the negative impact on the, on the life of the person that has been targeted in that uh, uh, hate speech. Um, so in this book, you, you were mentioned different social media platforms, but here you focus mainly on Facebook and Facebook data. I think um, you need to correct me here, but uh, that Brazil is kind of like the third or fourth most important market for Facebook. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about your process of collecting this data, uh, what methodology you used, and yes, why you chose Facebook primarily. Yes, in fact. Um, yeah, I collected Facebook data um, first because uh, those, datas, uh, those data were publicly available. So I worked only with um, content that was open uh, and also to safeguard uh, people's privacy. And, um, and I focus on, on Facebook in particular, uh, first because the largest social media platform in the world. And second, because it's extremely popular in Brazil. Uh, Brazil is the third largest market for this specific social media platform. Uh, although the uh, dynamic regarding um, the dissemination of hate speech, uh, it's the same across different social media platforms. So I have examined, in fact, uh, more than 200 um, different social media um, Facebook communities uh, but the, um, the way those discourses are disseminated on Facebook, um, in a sense, is not that different from what you would find on Twitter or Instagram, for example. Hmm. And so 
what did you find? Who are these jokers? Who are the main targets uh, targets of racist jokes? Yes, there are three uh, uh, main aspects that I found when examining those data. Um, first is that the uh, predominant profile of the people who engage in the practice of hate speech uh, in Brazil are men uh, on their early 20s. So that is the, the first aspect. The second aspect is that uh, their target are mostly black women aged between 20 to 35 years old and upward mobile black women. So that's the second aspect. And the third that's even more alarming is the fact that uh, those hate discourses, those racist discourses fostered on social media, they keep engaging new and recurrent users for up to three years after the original publication. So uh, if an individual posts a uh, uh, hateful, uh, hateful content today, that same content is capable of keeping engaging new people uh, to the same conversation for two years from now. So that is very alarming because it means that it amplifies um, the negative impacts on the life of the person that has been targeted by that uh, hateful uh, post. Do you understand? Right. And I guess the only way to counter that would be to take down, take down that content so that its life is not that long, right? Yeah. In fact, yeah, that's why uh, the society... Uh, demands from those um, large corporations to be faster in removing those disturbing content. And so, um, what do these jokers, as you call them, try to do? Oh, have you found any uh, obsessions, recurrent themes? Uh, what are some of the most prevalent things they are reacting to? Yes, in fact. So that's why uh, in my book, I started explaining or reviewing um, the, uh, the history of uh, colonialism and its legacy, and especially the white ideology and racial democracy, um, because those uh, 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 ideologies, those uh, constructs, they are present up to nowadays, up to the, the current time. And you can, see, uh, you can see them manifested on hate speech on social media. So uh, to be more clear on this aspect, um, so the racist discourse that I have examined on social media, they can either be um, explicitly or disguised in jokes. But in a sense, what they are doing uh, is to challenge the upward social mobility of black people, especially black women, in a way to delegitimize their position um, um, of how can I say uh, a position of um, not a privilege? That's not the right word that I'm looking for. Um, but what they are, uh, what they are trying to say is that uh, you don't belong in this position. Uh, your position is subservient, is at the bottom of the pyramid. So to give an example, there is there was one uh, um, post that I can analyze it where the user said uh, in regards to a black woman, a black woman who had been on vacation in Europe. And then this post said, the place of black women 
is not on Europe traveling, but in the kitchen. So it's a way to convey the idea of her, pos her social position, her legitimate social position, is not uh, in the whitening uh, um, space, but rather in the kitchen, in the back of the social uh, class. I don't know if it was clear for you. Yes, yes. And, and so why do you think... Uh, black women have been more targeted than uh, black men, for instance? Yes, because it's another legacy of the um, colonial colonialism in Brazil. Um, because the black women, they were the, um, how can I say, they were subject to uh, a variety of humiliations. So they worked in the house, you know, as uh, at the big house, um, they work also in the in the farms, and they were abused by the the settlers. So this has been going on for so many centuries, and and it has become naturalized as the her position or their position is at the bottom of the pyramid. So that is so deeply, you know, uh, linked to the collective mindset that people think that's natural, that's normal to belittle. Uh, black women this way on social media. And so what's the importance or, 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 or what is revealing about them using primarily jokes instead of direct racist, racist discourse? Yeah, the fact is that uh, uh, since jokes, they are uh, a socially accepted form of communication, they become, they become very convenient for Uh, white supremacists to convey the ideologies without sounding uh, completely, explicitly racist. Uh, and so they can also transfer um, the responsibility to the object of the mockery because uh, um, the person that is the object of the mockery, the subject of the mockery, um, becomes powerless because if he or she complains, uh, it's considered, okay, you cannot take a joke, it's just... Uh, Uh, you know, uh, just a, har a harmless joke. But in fact, it's not harmless because deep there, deep in there, uh, there is so much ideologies that position those black people in position of inferiority. You know, so uh, that's why uh, uh, humor or race joke is, has become so convenient for those people. Right. And I guess they can also appeal to um, arguments of freedom of speech, right? To to defend the kind of things they are saying. Yeah, in a way, yes. It, it also, they, they claim uh, freedom of speech. Um, but the fact is that uh, um, those racist jokes, they become so naturalized in the social fabric that uh, even children, they learn them and they replicate them. So it passed from one generation to another, and that becomes, you know, part of the social fabric. So that's the problem with the race joke, um, mm. because it's difficult to challenge, because they claim that uh, uh, it's harmless, but it's not harmless. And also the fact that uh, it perpetuates and it's passed from one generation to another. And uh, have you found... Um major differences between then online and offline racism? Uh, do you see the same 
So jokes are the same in one... No, the jokes are exactly the same. Uh, of course, that uh, um, offline, um, not all social circumstances, uh, people can uh, recite them. And so you, uh, in the offline context, usually uh, people need, a, how can I say, a degree of a proximity with the subject of the joke. So it's very difficult in the offline context. Um, um, people tell or recite a joke against someone that he or she doesn't know in real life. On the other hand, online, in the online environment, especially on social media, um, they disregard those, uh, I call social distance, uh, in the fact that this proximity between uh, one object and the other. So, for example, um, celebrities, you know, people that are on the media more frequently, they are easily targeted uh, because on, in the online environment, the white supremacists, they think, okay, that the person is famous. So uh, it's like I know her in, intimately. So they don't, uh, how can I say, they're not restrained by any limit. They just uh, recite you know, their, their hate against uh, uh, that people, even though they have no um, personal relationship. Hmm. And you also mentioned that um, in spite of then defending the idea that jokes are innocent, they still are very, um, how can I say this? They, they want to remain anonymous and that you even try to have like direct contact with uh, certain individuals, but... Um, they weren't open to this kind of uh, personal dialogue. Could you talk more about the, the, the power of anonymity in encouraging uh, these attitudes? People who engage in these practices online, um, they believe that uh, uh, the computer screen protects them, you know? So there is this belief that, okay, I'm behind the computer screen, so I can write anything that I want without any restriction, and I will not be found. But that is completely false because uh, technology evolves every day and it's, and it's uh, completely possible uh, to identify the people uh, if it's needed. So there are means to identify those people who engage uh, in this practice. So that's the first thing. The second aspect that is uh, even more revealing is that uh, uh, in most of the cases that I have analyzed, so... The people who engage in this practice, you know, white supremacy and uh, hate speech and so forth, uh, they feel very empowered when they are um, posting their content, they are attacking someone. However, the moment that uh, that attack uh, hit, reaches the headlines of the news, uh, it's captured, for example, it becomes a, a topic that discussed in the newspapers, in a magazine or a TV program, etc., You know what these people do? They take one of the four actions. First, they, or not in, exactly in this order, you know, but they can delete the, the post. They can um, delete or cancel their account on social media. They change the status of the account from public to private, or they um, claim that was only a joke. So what does it mean? It means that before uh, that attack became object of a news article, they felt very, empo very empowered. 
the moment that uh, specific attack was the subject of a news article, and so the spotlight was thrown in his direction, so he becomes scared. He says, okay, I have to do something. So either I try to eliminate any trace of my manifestation, or I claim I was on a joke. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. And so what has been the response of the online community in general beyond these groups? What forms of anti-racist strategies have you found? Yeah, that is interesting because um, although the attacks, uh, they can be very aggressive uh, in the language that they use, because as I said before, uh, those racist uh, discourse on social media, they can be explicitly or they can also be disguised in jokes. Of course, that when, the, when that's guys in jokes, the language usually is not very aggressive because it's meant to be funny. And when they are explicitly, they can be aggressive or not aggressive in terms of language. Uh, but regarding the resistance um, initiative that have been fostered uh, by black Brazilians and especially black women, they don't uh, um, challenge those attacks using the same level of vocabulary that they, they, they use, you know, the uh, white supremacists. Uh, on the opposite, uh, as I said before, so those communities, they try to empower black people by fostering the political symbology of the Afro uh, hairstyle, the natural hairstyle, you know, to uh, claim uh, a renewed perception of blackness. So they go in a different direction uh, to challenge those discourses. So instead of uh, fighting fire with fire, you know, they go, they, they adopt adopt a different approach to challenge those negative perceptions regarding blackness. Hmm. The book was published a year ago, and um, you were able to comment on. Jair Bolsonaro's uh, campaign with his slogan, Brazil is my color, and a little bit about his first year in the presidency. Um, I was wondering, how, how do you see the situation now? Have uh, the same trends continued? Has the pandemic um, changed anything? Or, or if- No, unfortunately, uh, the situation has worsened. Uh, first, of course, for the pandemic, but also because um, uh, uh, this presidency um, is very negationist uh, in, in all aspects, and also not only regarding the pandemic, but also regarding uh, racism. They deny that racism exists. They say uh, both the president and the vice president, in more than one occasion, they have said racism doesn't exist in Brazil. It's something that has been created by foreigners that are trying to export this ideology to Brazil. So they rewrite history, you know. So that is very bad because, uh, and problematic, um, because that challenges uh, so many progress that the black organized movement has achieved over the past few decades. Um, So the situation is very complicated. And the fact, uh, and given the fact that... uh, he and the, the, the vice president, they represent the most important uh, public figure in the country, you know, official public figure. So they represent the voice of the Brazilian state. So that is very problematic when 
uh, a figure in his position comes publicly to say you know, this kind of thing that uh, racism does not exist. You know, so uh, it's again, is the uh, confirmation, is the reinforcement of the same beliefs that we talked regarding the construction of the modern Brazil based on whitening ideology and racial democracy. So it's the, just the perpetuation of the same ideology that has been around for almost two centuries. Just to finish the interview, I wanted to know what you were working on right now. Um, if you could share that with us. Oh, yes, absolutely. So thank you very much for the interview and the invitation. Um, so nowadays I'm working on two major projects. First is a book chapter to be published next year where I address um, the political symbology of a female Afro hairstyle in Brazil. So this uh, political symbology behind the Afro hairstyle. And the second project I have been working with um, Brazil's largest anti-racist online platform is called um, um, Feminismos Plurais, or Plural Feminism. Um, so I've been working on a couple of projects with them, with them regarding publications and online teaching. So those are the two main projects I'm working at the moment. Wow. And we look forward to reading them. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us today and, and for talking about your research. And we hope to have you again soon. Thank you very much.